gorgeous day to be out on the lake. Man, is this ever relaxing. You know, it doesn't even matter to me whether we catch any fish. It just feels so good after all the pressure of finishing that three-week project at the office yesterday. It is a pretty day, and I'll also say it's a good thing it doesn't matter that we don't catch any fish because we're certainly not having much luck now. No. Uh, as I remember from our last outing, we didn't even catch a single fish, even though you did get a bite. But I do remember we did have a great discussion. Do you happen to remember what we talked about that day, Bill? Wasn't that the time we talked about why it is that bad things happen to good people if there's supposed to be a loving God in charge? Good memory. And that discussion was uh, very helpful to me, just like the rest of our interaction on these issues has been. Uh, you know, I, I feel like I've come a, a long way since then, and I'll have to admit I'm steadily moving closer to God, you know, in my search for comfort and looking for the truth on these issues. But it also seems to me that for the past six months or so since we've been having these conversations, I no sooner get one question put to rest than another one comes up. Can you see it coming? <laughs> Would you like to hear the latest? Of course. Fire away. Okay. Um, let's see. You, you've helped me to understand the Bible's position that no one can earn a relationship with God based on their good deeds. That is, since none of us even comes close to qualifying. Since we're thousands of miles short, you know, like that illustration of swimming to Hawaii, uh -huh. our only hope is to place our trust in Jesus Christ who uh, paid the full penalty for our sins, that is to accept the gift. You're a quick study. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. Well, I, I haven't accepted that gift yet, but that does lead to my question. Surely there must be some requirement after you make that decision, some, some conditions that must be kept or else you'd lose the gift? Lamar, think about it this way. Suppose I won the lottery, and um, suppose I decided to have a brand-new Porsche delivered to your house with a bow on it as a, as a birthday present. Well, keep those cards and letters coming. I'd be very grateful, I can assure you. <laughs> but what if, um, at the end of every month thereafter, you got a bill in the, in the mailbox for 600 bucks? Well, then I'd conclude that what you gave me was a loan, not a gift. All right, exactly. If there are conditions to the offer of eternal life, then it can't be a gift. I think it's important to realize that nearly 200 times in the New Testament, the only condition stated for, for salvation or for eternal life is faith or belief. There's nothing added about any kind of maintenance requirement. In one of the New Testament letters, it says that we have life or eternal life based solely on whether or not we have the Son, who's Jesus Christ, of course. Now, how do we get the Son? Well, simply by receiving him as a gift. There it is again. Exactly. And, and then it goes on to say that this is written for us so that we can know that we have eternal life. It doesn't say think or guess or hope, but it uses the word know that we have eternal life. And in another statement, Jesus himself said, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, it says he has eternal life, that he does not come into judgment, but that he has passed already out of death and into life. Boy, that sounds like a loaded statement. Well, it is. It's loaded with promises. For one thing, the eternal life is conditioned on believing 
not on performing a lot of good deeds. For another, when you believe, it says you have eternal life, not you will get eternal life at the end of the rainbow if you live a good enough life, but that you have it now. In other words, it's a, it's a present possession. And I think it's also important to keep in mind that if you could lose it, well, then it was never eternal in the first place. Well, I guess that's true. So it, it seems to me that when we make that decision to believe in or to place our trust in Christ, at that moment, we receive eternal life. No strings, no conditions. Bill, it just seems to me like if, if that's really the case— then God is handing out a license to steal and that offering eternal life, regardless of what you do after accepting the gift, would just promote bad behavior. It sounds dangerous to me. Lamar, but aren't we as parents offering the same kind of security to our children and and aren't we taking the same kind of risks? Well, I'm not sure I see the connection, Bill. Well, let's suppose that you and I set up an identical list of rules for our children and that you communicate unconditional love for your daughter. If she breaks one of your rules, you discipline her lovingly, all the while assuring her of your love. She's never even considered the possibility that breaking one of your rules could get her expelled from the family. Well, that sounds exactly like how we've tried to set things up for her. Okay, now imagine with me for a moment that, although you and I agree on the rules, that I take a different approach on consequences— and I constantly threaten my children with expulsion or disinheritance. Do you think this approach will produce better or worse results if the goal is to raise healthy, productive, contributing people and citizens to society? Well, I think it's obvious that kids come out a lot better if they're raised with unconditional love and security. So I guess your point is if security is a good thing between us and our kids in that relationship, then – why would it be such a dangerous thing in the relationship between God and us? Is that what you mean? Exactly my point. God offering us eternal life, true security, actually promotes better behavior, not worse. A while ago, a friend told me a very interesting story about the building of the Golden Gate Bridge that I think helps to clarify this point. Built in the late 30s, wasn't it? It sure was, and at a uh, cost of about $77 million dollars. But it turns out that the greatest cost was the cost in human lives. About halfway through, they realized that 23 men had fallen to their deaths. So they decided to build a, a very expensive safety net out of stout manila rope. And they found that in the second half of construction, not a single man died. And on top of that, work productivity increased by 25%. Oh, I can see that. If you were scared of a small mistake or slip, you know, resulting in your death, and I can see how that would be awfully inhibiting. So once again, it turns out that security can actually help produce the right kind of behavior. As a matter of fact, I've known quite a few people who have operated on the assumption for much of their lives that living a good life is the requirement for getting to heaven, who then changed their mind based on what the Bible has to say and accepted that gift as a gift with no strings. And Lamar, what I've observed is that in every instance, what they themselves and their families have concluded is that their lives have improved steadily, not gotten worse. Genuine security through faith in Christ actually does breed growth. 
But Bill, what if someone accepts this gift of eternal life that we've been discussing and then commits murder or adultery, or, you know, one of the big ones? I know this may just be hypothetical, but I, I think you'd have to admit that the possibility exists that a person can accept the gift and then commit one or more major sins. Well, more, I think it's more than hypothetical. In fact, the Bible tells about a man who committed both murder and adultery. His name was King David. But before we start condemning him too quickly, let's think back to our discussion about the about the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. Uh, that's the one where Jesus said that not only murder and adultery were deal breakers with God, but so were hatred and lust. That's the one. You see, if King David had a relationship with God, and the Bible says he did, as a matter of fact, it says that he was a man after God's own heart. If King David had a relationship with God and then lost it because of his adultery, then, referring back to the Sermon on the Mount, everyone who has lusted would be disqualified as well. Not only could murder disqualify a person, so could the sin of bitterness. Sin is sin, and, and God hates it all. He doesn't distinguish between the degrees of sin. That that was the Pharisee's mistake. He doesn't? Nope. Remember, if good deeds are the requirement, either to get into a relationship with God or to maintain it, then the standard is perfection. And that means, Lamar, that you and I are both in trouble. Well, I know I am. <laughs> it's kind of like a toddler who's just learning to walk. You know, they grab your finger with their pudgy little hand, but then they trip and and they fall because they can't hang on. But when we get tired of watching them fall and we grab their hand and put their hand in ours, the toddler still trips and stumbles, but they don't fall. And I think as I look at the promises in Scripture, that's what God is promising to do, to hang on to us. And the good news is we're in his hand. Boy, I like that. That's a neat picture. Well, the good news is that Christ paid the penalty for all our sins not just the so-called little ones. He paid for future sins, not just past ones. Now, wait a minute. Are you saying that if I accept this gift, that at that point, even the sins that I haven't committed yet will be erased? Not will be, have been. Think of it this way. Let's say I live to be 80 years old, and at the age of 40, I make the big decision to accept the gift of Christ's payment for my sins. Now, imagine that I committed a million sins up to that point in my life. Oh, I don't know, Bill. Sounds like a pretty conservative estimate to me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess you can move the decimal point if you want to. (laughs) Well, right. Actually, Bill, if if your tally is one million, then mine probably has got to be 10 million or more. But, but, you know, hey, who's counting? (laughs) Well, anyway, let's say I committed those one million sins. Uh, I realized my plight before God and that I accept that gift today, then let's suppose that you and I can both somehow see into the future and that that in the next 40 years, I commit another 100,000 sins. Well, that's an impressive 90% reduction in your (laughs) sin output, but it's still an awful lot of sin. I agree. Uh, But the question I'm getting at is, how many of my sins are paid for as we sit here today in this boat? Only the one million I committed before accepting the gift or my whole life total of one million one hundred thousand wow that's a that's a tough one. I guess when you think about it, um, 
whenever it was that Jesus was crucified. Yeah, 33 A.D. Okay, 33 A.D. You hadn't committed any sins at that point yet since you obviously weren't even born. So I guess according to the claims of the Bible, as you're explaining them here, Jesus was dying to pay the penalty for sins yet to be committed as well as for sins committed previously at that point in history. I I couldn't agree more. So uh, back to my original question, how many of my sins are paid for as of right now? Well, as amazing as it sounds, the only thing that makes sense is that all of the sins are paid for, even the ones you haven't committed yet. Exactly. All of them are paid for. But here's another question. As far as God's concerned, how many sins are now on the track record for my life? Well, I guess I guess the only answer would be none. Which is exactly why it's possible for a perfect and holy God to accept a sinner like Bill Craftson. He won't lower his standard, but because of Christ paying the penalty in full, he doesn't have to lower his standard. When I accepted the gift, the Bible says that all my sins were completely and totally forgiven, past, present, and future. Or as it says in one place in the New Testament, by one sacrifice, Jesus made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Well, although so much of this uh, is new to my way of thinking, I have to admit that there's a logic that uh, you've explained here that's hard to escape. In fact, I have to say that the offer of complete and total forgiveness is both appealing to me and uh, it's it's moving. But. Yeah, you got it. But what motivation would you have, you know, I mean, if, if it's a free gift with no strings, as you put it, then what motivation would anyone have to go on from that point and live a good life with the threat of damnation now completely removed? How do you keep the troops in line? In other words... Why be good? Yeah, why be good? That's exactly right. You seem very sure that you're going to heaven when you die, and yet you seem to be very committed to living a good moral life. Why? Lamar, you're right. I am very sure I'm going to heaven. But it's only because I'm very sure about Jesus Christ being God like he claimed, and because I'm very sure about the promise he made to bring me to heaven as a result of placing my trust in him. It's sure not because I've lived a good enough life. I haven't. So, Bill, give me one good reason why you still try to be good. Well, Lamar, I think I can do better than that. I can give you half a dozen reasons why I try to be good and why I'm motivated to try to live a good life. And one of them is simply gratitude. If you ever had some of those soul-searching moments like I've had and, and realized how much there is to be ashamed of, how much has been less than noble or loving or kind or good. In short, that I don't deserve to spend eternity with God in heaven. And then thought of Jesus Christ going to the cross in my place and offering complete forgiveness. Well, it's a bit overwhelming. Okay, let's just say for purposes of discussion, I have had some soul-searching moments like that. Okay, here's the realization. Although I can't pay for this gift, I can try to express my gratitude. I owed a debt I couldn't pay. He paid a debt he didn't owe. And I don't know a better way to express my gratitude than through the way I live my life. The least I can do is say thanks. I can relate to that somewhat, Bill, but is that what motivates you the most to live a good life? 
I can say this. It's a real and important motivation. But I have to say, probably not the most powerful one. Probably not as much of a factor as I think it actually should be. So there's maybe a stronger one? Yes. Uh, and I'd say a, a stronger motivation would be a combination of two things. On the one hand, a desire to experience what Jesus called the abundant life. And on the other, a desire to avoid unnecessary pain. Well, that sounds like a good combination. What did you say about the abundant life? What is that? Well, abundant simply means full or rich or satisfying. And the Bible says that God wants to produce certain kinds of traits in our lives, but that we can only get these traits by developing a, a closeness with him, by trusting him and, and by following his direction. And here's the description of these traits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Doesn't that pretty well describe what most of us would really like to have in life? The kinds of things money can't buy. Exactly. C.S. Lewis suggests that most of us are like the child playing with mud pies in a ghetto. And somebody comes along and offers him a day at the beach, but he turns it down because he doesn't want to quit playing with the mud pies. The problem from God's perspective is not that we want too much out of life, but that, like the child, we're satisfied with far too little. We could have had a day at the beach. We settle for material success or ambition or power or alcohol when God offers us something far deeper and more satisfying. That kind of reminds me, Bill, of a quote I read the other day that warns people about spending our lives climbing the ladder of success and Finally, after many years of hard work, you get to the top and you find out that the ladder is leaning on the wrong wall. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head, Lamar. I don't want to miss the best in life. I don't want my ladder leaning on the wrong wall. God loved me enough to send his son to die for me and, and to offer me eternal life as a gift with no strings. Now that makes me trust that with that kind of love, he must want the best for me. And since he's all-knowing, that means he knows what's best for me. So what he wants is really what I want down deep. I think I'd be a fool not to go for that. Now that, to me, is a, a powerful motivation for living a good life. It's the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. Hold on there. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, take the example of a bright boy who's flunking math. His father threatens him that he'll be grounded unless he gets at least a C. So grudgingly, he pulls his grade up to the minimum. Now imagine that this same boy has a friend who lends him an expensive and complex graphing calculator that, that would have the possibility of saving him a lot of time doing his homework. Well, in the process of trying to figure out how to use this thing, he begins to ask his teacher and his friends for information and he becomes consumed with this calculator. To his father's amazement, this boy's grades begin to climb. And eventually, this kid is pulling down A's in math. Why? Well, I guess because his motivation changed from extrinsic to intrinsic, from something someone else wanted him to do to something that he wanted to do. Exactly. And, and in my experience, the more I come to understand God's grace and his his unconditional love for me, the more I trust him, and, and then the more I want to live life his way rather than kind of trying to keep him at arm's length. So you're saying that you actually want to obey God and live a good life? Well, absolutely, at least when my head's in the game. 
obedience isn't a condition for eternal life, but it is a condition for that abundant life here on this earth that I frankly want so much. Okay, I think I get your point. I can really relate to the idea of going for the real gusto in life. Uh, I've done a lot of that, not wanting to miss out on the best there is. But didn't you say something about a more negative motivation of avoiding the pain in life? Do you think that if you live a good life that you can avoid all the pain in life, Bill? Well, let me answer that by saying that I think there are two types of pain in life, unavoidable pain and avoidable pain. Okay, what's an example of unavoidable pain? All right, imagine that someone in your family comes down with a rare and fatal blood cancer or that you're driving down the highway minding your own business and a a drunk driver crashes across the median and into your car at 60 miles an hour. Those would be examples of, of what I think of as unavoidable pain. Okay, I can see that that would qualify. Can you give me an example of avoidable pain? Easy. Suppose somebody ignores all the warnings, they smoke four packs of cigarettes a day for 40 years and then develop lung cancer. Or think of the guy who's purely selfish and ill-tempered and constantly mean to his wife. Eventually, she divorces him when the kids leave and he ends up living the rest of his life as a miserable and lonely old man. I think there's all kinds of pain in this life that we clearly bring on ourselves simply by the bad choices we make. All right. I, I can see the validity and, and the distinction of these two categories. Uh, how, how does this relate to motivations? Well, simply this. I don't like pain. I'd like to avoid as much of it as I can by paying attention to God's warnings. Think of it this way. Imagine that you're an infantry lieutenant and that you've been ordered to take your men through a pass loaded with landmines. What if, right before you set out, a spy showed up with a map locating every mine? Well, I think my man and I would dance a jig. (laughs) Well, similarly, I I like to think of the Bible as a map from the God who loves us, a map that locates the landmines of life. I want to follow that map so I can avoid any of the unnecessary pain in life. I also think that maybe the parent-child relationship can help clarify this concept. How so? Well, imagine that you come over to my house someday, and the first thing you see is my son standing on the peak of the roof three stories high. He has a Superman cape on, and it's obvious he's about to jump. Well, obviously, you'd be alarmed, and and you call out, Timothy, hasn't your father told you never to jump off the roof? Now, what if he replied, yes, Mr. Smith, but I know my daddy, and I know he'll forgive me. What would you say to him? Well, uh, I don't think I could convince him that you wouldn't forgive him. I I guess all I would try to do is let him know that you... Forbid him to jump precisely because you love him so much and that you don't want him to hurt himself. Exactly. That's just how God feels toward us. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, it's easier to get forgiveness than permission. Sure. If, if I want to do something wrong, I can go ahead and do it, and then I can go back later and ask for forgiveness. Yes. Some people take that attitude. But I have to say, I think it's incredibly foolish. Even though he can always get forgiveness... My son, in that illustration, may still have to live with the painful consequences of disobedience by perhaps spending the rest of his life in a wheelchair. Oh, that's a great point, Bill. Fear of natural consequences really can be a great motivator. I think it is a great motivator, but I have to say that's not all I'm afraid of. That is, the natural consequences. 
I'm also afraid of God himself. Hey, now, wait a minute. What happened to all that stuff about the love of God? I, I thought you believed that once you accepted the gift of uh, salvation that God would never zap you. Well, I do believe that once we actually place our trust in Christ that, that he'll never remove our eternal life. But that doesn't mean he won't discipline us. The New Testament says that if a father doesn't discipline his children, it means he doesn't really love them. As I look back in my experience, I can say that there was never a moment when I didn't know beyond a shadow of a doubt that my father loved me. But I did have a healthy fear of being disciplined by him. (laughs) Boy, yes, I can relate to that. Uh, I think sometimes I can still feel that pedal on my backside. You know, I I had a friend who, uh, when his kids had disobeyed or disrespected their mom, you know, something really serious, he would tell them to go out to the workshop and wait. He'd take his sweet time getting out there to, you know, make sure that he had completely calmed down. And then he'd make a new paddle. He'd even drill the holes in it so it'd be more aerodynamic. and Ooh. He'd make it thin so it wouldn't do any real damage, but boy, would it sting. And then, you know, after the Board of Education had been applied to the seat of learning. <laughs> That's good. Uh, they would both work together and they would burn the paddle so as to symbolize the end of the discipline. Believe it or not, his uh, grown boys still talk about it fondly to this day. They knew how much he loved him, and they respected him. Well, Lamar, my dad wasn't that creative, but he sure did get my attention. It's interesting. I never was afraid of being punished unfairly. I was afraid of getting what I deserved. I get it. And, And although I had to get my share of discipline from my dad, that healthy fear did keep me out of a lot of trouble. And I feel the same way about God. There are certain things I don't do simply because I do have a fear of his loving discipline. Okay. Since you obviously don't believe that God will take heaven away from you, tell me, what form do you think his punishment might take? Well, I'm not all that sure about the different ways that that God might discipline, but the Bible gives a couple of them. One way would be simply to refuse a request that otherwise he might have granted. Well, that sounds pretty mild. Well, perhaps, unless there's something that you really want desperately. Now, the New Testament also records a couple of instances where God actually took somebody's life physically. Whoa, that's what I'd call serious. Kind of the other extreme, pretty hard-edged. Well, the way I see it is this. God always loves us, and he's always ready to forgive and to restore us to fellowship if we humble ourselves. But there are still those natural consequences we have to live with, and perhaps, sometimes, direct action from God. As I said, I'd like to avoid that discipline from my Heavenly Father just like I did from my earthly father. I must say, Bill, I'd, I prefer your other motivations for living a good life to this last one. But I guess I have to admit it's fair and it's sobering. Well, there's another one that comes to my mind that's not only sobering but inspiring. And, and that's the concept of rewards in the New Testament, eternal rewards. Are you talking about getting to heaven as a reward? I thought that was supposed to be a gift. Well, you're right. Heaven is a gift, not a reward. But some of those in heaven will be given rewards there based on faithful service here in this life. According to the Bible, there are actually two judgments that will take place in the future. The first one is for those who rejected Christ on this earth, and it says that they'll be separated from God forever and that they'll be shown the justice of their fate. Are you talking about hell? Lamar, I'm afraid so. 
that's eternal separation from God. Okay, well, what about the other judgment you mentioned? Well, the New Testament calls the other one the the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the only people who will be there will be those who made their decision to accept Christ. Uh, in other words, the people who are going to heaven. Then what's the judgment about? Well, this judgment is about Jesus Christ himself evaluating our service to him on earth after the point that we came into his family. Although I don't think about this as often as I think I should, it is another powerful motivator. It means that if I do what's right for the right reason, even though perhaps no one else knows or understands, I'll get to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And I'll get to hear those words from the one who loved me enough to make the ultimate sacrifice for me. Just thinking about that inspires me to to do a better job with my life. Well, Bill, you've uh, certainly made a compelling case that this radical idea of eternal life as a gift with no strings is is, uh, not only true, but that it promotes moral improvement, so to speak, not the uh, moral laziness as I initially thought. As a matter of fact, I feel kind of ashamed that my motives are not as noble as yours. Uh, I feel like I need to make some changes in my life before I would take that step of faith that we've been talking about. But, Lamar, that's kind of like trying to drive a car without using the engine. The Bible says that when we receive Christ, we become new creatures, that God will supernaturally take up residence in our lives, and, and he'll help us to make the changes from the inside out. We don't have to make these important changes by ourselves. In fact, we we can't make them without his help. But that's exactly what he wants to do because he loves us. He's making those changes in my life. But remember, while I'm not what I should be and I'm not what I could be, at least I'm not what I used to be. And I'm deeply grateful for the progress that's taken place in my life. Indeed. This, This really is an incredible deal you've been describing to me. Forgiveness, the guarantee of heaven, fulfillment in the here and now. Sometimes I feel pretty dense, but, uh, but I think it's finally coming together for me. Hey. Hey, what? Hey, I think there's something on my line, and it's moving. No. After all this time without a bite, could this be a sign? <laughs> <laughs>